So tonight we're still in the book of John, and we're doing the sevens, seven miracles and the seven I am statements. And tonight we're going to go through I am the bread of life. And I want to actually back up for a minute and talk a little bit about some structure. If you remember back in John chapter 5, where we had the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, goes to the pool and he says, take up your bed and walk and so forth. After that, we have a riff where he's talking with the Pharisees about his authority. I want to touch on that fairly briefly because the subject of his authority and eternal life are both going to come up in the context of the bread of life. So in order to put that in context, we need to back up to John 5:19. Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So what he's saying, obviously, is that as the Son, he is able to do the things the Father does, but he's only able to do them as the Son because the Father himself can do them. He has no independent abilities of his own. All of his abilities are derivative from things that the Father can do. So if there was something the Father couldn't do, the Son couldn't do it either. So the idea here, where the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, what Yeshua is saying is, I and the Father and the Spirit are one being. You're looking at me, the body, but my mind, will, and emotions is really derived from what you call God the Father. But we're all one being, so there isn't anything I can do that he can't do, and there isn't anything I see that he doesn't see, and so forth. Now, just sort of as a side note, Yeshua is limited in what he can do because he is a physical human being. So one of the things he says later on is the things I will do, you will do greater things. I regard that as greater in quantity, not greater in quality, which is to say... Yeshua, if he were in this room, because he is more intimately connected to who he is than we are, will certainly be able to do more powerful things. But because Yeshua is one man in one body, all of us can go out and we can speak the word and we can lay hands on the sick and we can do all those things and we can do far more things than he can do because there's more of us. It isn't that we're able to do something that he couldn't do. It's that we're able to do more of what he was able to do because there are more of us than the one man, Yeshua. All right, so now I'm down to verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So because God raises the dead and gives life, I can do that. If the Father couldn't do that, I wouldn't be able to do that. But because he can, I can also. And furthermore, I can do it to whom I will. I have a choice as to who I give life to. And we see that later on when he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
I don't remember where I first heard this, it's certainly not a red note with me, is Yeshua doesn't stand in front of the tomb and say, y'all dead folks come out. Because if he did, they'd all come out. What he specifically says is Lazarus come out. So I want to raise Lazarus from the dead, but I don't want the rest of you corpses coming out. I want you all the rest of you staying in there. I just want Lazarus. So he has fine control over who he will raise from the dead. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So who are we believing in in this sentence? The Father. So at this point, he is not saying, believe in me, the Son. He is saying, listening to me, Yeshua, and then because of my words, believing in the Father will get you eternal life. Now, one of the things we're going to do tonight is we're going to do a bunch of stuff on eternal life. Interestingly, the phrase eternal life only shows up in the New Testament. It's in a number of places there. And we're going to talk about that because we're going to get to the bread of life and what that means. I'm not going to read his entire soliloquy here since we've already, I think, been through it. But I want to skip down to verse 30. Now I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So whose testimony is he talking about? At this point, what he's saying is, I am not authenticating myself. Go ask John. And John will authenticate me. In a minute, he will also say that the Father authenticates it. So verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So, who is the witness then from the Father? The works bear witness, and the Father bears witness. The Father has borne witness through the scriptures. The scriptures bear witness to what he's done started off by saying, all right, you saw John out there doing baptisms and all that kind of stuff, and you guys went out there and got baptized for repentance and so forth, and you think John is a real hot rock and a genuine prophet. Cool. He bears witness of me. However, the works that the Father has given me to do bear witness to me, and the Father himself bears witness to me. And the way that the Father himself bears witness to him is through the written word. 
So now, let me pick it back up at 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent, which is to say, Yeshua. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So he's saying to the Pharisees, you guys are searching the scriptures because you think you're going to find eternal life in there. And what I'm telling you is those very same scriptures are bearing witness about who I am and about me. And if you don't believe that I am who I say I am, that's because you don't have the scriptures properly understood within you. So verse 39 again, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So they are bound up in this guy, this man, Yeshua, who came from Nazareth. And one of the things that they say in this book, Nicodemus later on is arguing with the Pharisees when they're trying to arrest him. And they sort of put Nicodemus down by looking at him and says, show me in the scriptures where it says that the prophet comes from Galilee. You can't find it. This guy comes from Galilee, therefore he cannot be the one we're looking for. And that just sort of shuts Nicodemus down. The problem that they're having is they have got this physical, flesh and blood, Yeshua guy that's rumbling around, messing up their stuff because he keeps poking him in the eye over things like Shabbat and stuff like that. They've got this human being that's giving him all sorts of fits and this guy is saying I'm the Messiah and they can't get past the fact that this guy's really a pain in the butt. They're sort of hung up in the humanness of him and they can't get past that and what he's saying is you guys are missing it because John bore witness to me, the works bear witness to me, and the word bears witness to me. And because you don't see it, you don't have the word within you. So all that's by way of authority. So the next thing he does is feeds the 5,000, which we went through last time. So the next thing that's going to happen is we're going to have the bread of life. So I'm now going to skip down to John 6:22. So he's gone across the lake. We all remember the story. He sends his disciples out ahead of him in a boat. And they go chugging across the lake, and they sort of get stalled in the middle by rough weather. And he walks out and is intending to walk right on by them. And they panic. And he says, oh, calm down, it's just me. And gets in the boat with them, and they go on across. The people on the shore where he left from saw his disciples leave in the boat. They never saw Yeshua leave. So that's the setup here. So, verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Yeshua had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And all that's true. Yeshua went off to pray, and then when he was done, he just picked up and started walking across the sea. So, as far as they're concerned, there was only one boat, and that was full of disciples and no Yeshua. So, where'd this guy go? Is, is the question. So verse 23. 
Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Yeshua was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Yeshua. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Yeshua answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So here we have eternal life again. Okay, That's why I started at the end of the last chapter. So do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Notice he doesn't answer their question, first off. He just sort of dodges around that. And he says, you're following me because I fed you last time, and I suspect you're probably here hungry again. What he's then telling them is, in context, they have just rowed across the lake. So what they are doing in this context is they are laboring for another free meal. And what he's telling them is, hey, the only reason you're here is because I fed you last night. And what I'm telling you now is don't labor for the food that is going to be eaten and processed out like all other food. Instead, labor for the food that brings eternal life. And, oh, by the way, the Son of Man will give it to you, for in him God the Father has set us healed. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So back up to verse 27. Do not labor, do not work, for the food that perishes, but, parenthesis, work, for the food that endures to eternal life. So then they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the work that gets us this food? Yeshua answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what what they're saying is, okay, guy, you're claiming to be the one who has the ability to give us this food that leads to eternal life. How do we know you're telling the truth? Now, I think a fairly satisfactory answer would have been, uh, how many of you guys were on the other side of the lake yesterday? But that's not what he says. So verse 32, Yeshua then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what he's doing is, first thing he's doing is, they're taking the conversation back to the wilderness. It's them who say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. God fed our fathers in the wilderness directly. Our fathers didn't have to plant stuff and grow it. They got manna directly. So in the wilderness, God gave us this bread that sustained our lives. It's the manna in the wilderness that came from God that physically sustained our lives. So what Yeshua is then saying is, your fathers ate that bread and they died. That was not the bread of eternal life, even though it was directly from the Father. And what I am telling you is that the bread of eternal life is the one who is sent by the Father 
and is bringing with him the word of God. Remember what happens on his first temptation. Satan says, turn these stones into bread. You've been fasting for 40 days, you're hungry. Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. And he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. So what he's saying here then is the manna that your ancestors ate in the wilderness, they died. That was not the eternal life bread. What is the eternal life bread is the one who comes down from heaven with the word. And so I'm I'm back in 32. Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So I am going to be the bread who brings life to the world, and I'm going to do it through the word of God. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. So this is one of the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am that bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not ever thirst. Does that mean that believers in Messiah do not have to do lunch? No. He's not talking in terms of you're never going to have to eat again. What he's saying is you will get to a place where you will neither hunger nor thirst, which is eternal life, because we're talking in terms of eternal life. And he's going to mention eternal life again down in verse 40. This conversation is bracketed by eternal life above and below. So he is not saying that you're never going to be able to enjoy lunch or a glass of water again if you believe in me. What he's saying is you will get eternal life, which means that you will never again hunger or thirst. Pick it up back up in verse 35 and read the next chapter. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now that should take you back up to the end of chapter 5 that we just went through. That's why I started that riff at the tail end of chapter 5 where he says, I'm not doing anything on my own authority. I'm simply doing what my Father sent me to do. So now we're coming down and repeating that concept. 38 again. For I have come down for heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That screams to me of the serpent in the wilderness. Remember in the book of Numbers, that they're in the wilderness and they get these fiery serpents that come into the camp which I believe, by the way, are dragons. Flying serpents that spit fire, and that's textbook definition of a dragon to me. They may not be very big dragons, but they're dragons. What God has Moses do is cast a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten by a fiery serpent looks to that standard and is healed. And as I say, this particular passage Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we're not talking about Yeshua being raised up. We're talking about the believer being raised up. But the idea that when you are trapped in sin and death, if you then look at the sun in the same way that someone who is bitten by a fiery serpent looks at the serpent up on the pole, you're healed. Notice in the book of Numbers where Moses talks about that. There isn't anything about doing anything with that serpent except looking at it. That's all you have to do. You just look at it. And if you're in a place where you can see that serpent and you look up to that serpent, then you will be healed of the bite of the fiery serpent. So now I'm down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Yeshua, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So again, we're back in this problem with we have got this physical guy, Yeshua. We've known his family ever since he was in diapers. How does this guy say, I have come down from heaven? We know that's not true because we know his mother and his father. So they are having the same problem as the Pharisees had before, where you've got this physical guy that's being a pain in the tail and messing up all their stuff, and they can't see past the physical guy who is a problem to the Son of God who has been sent. Because the physical guy who's a problem to them is in their face. And these people are having the same problem. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can this guy have come down from heaven? I know his mom and his dad. 43. Yeshua answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. One of the things that's going on here, a little bit of sidebar. Yeshua is saying that the only people that are coming to me are the ones that the Father has drawn. I personally do not take that in a Calvinist way. It does sound very Calvinist. But I am thinking that he is speaking in the context of an Old Testament prophet. He has come into town. God has sent him into town. The only people that are going to come to him are the people that are going to be necessary for his prophetic ministry as he is walking around Israel. He is not talking, I don't believe, about after his death and resurrection, only people that God has grabbed are going to be able to come to him, and some people are never going to be chosen. I don't think that's what's being said. That would be the Calvinist approach. What I'm thinking he's saying is in this context, as we're standing here on the edge of the lake, there's going to be 12 people that are going to come to me because God draws those 12 people to it. In fact, this is the vignette where his discipleship gets down to 12. All of his disciples fall away except 12. And so I am seeing this as being local and ministerial as opposed to eternal. Let's pick it up at 46. Not everyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. 
he has seen the Father. Who is he talking about? Himself. Which is a statement that he got sent, not that he is anointed. Different people at different times believe different things about Yeshua. One belief is that Yeshua was just really a good guy, and God looked down and says, wow, that's really a good guy. I'm going to adopt him as my son, and he's going to be the Messiah. Another version is that Yeshua is an angelic being, as, as in a spiritual being, as in God-like being, who simply put on a man suit. And the thing we see is not really him. It's sort of like angels. You see in the Old Testament all the time where people are talking to men, and all of a sudden they realize they're talking to an angel. That's another view of who Christ is. I don't believe either of those two views. What I believe is Yeshua was with the Father before the Incarnation. He is, in fact, born of a woman. But he pre-existed. So he has seen the face of a Father even though he humbles himself and comes down to us and is born of a woman. That's how he gets his body. And it's hard to talk about. 46 again. Not everyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So now what he's doing is he is about to lose a whole bunch of disciples. He is saying that he is the bread of heaven. 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, there's two things about that. Giving flesh to eat while you're still alive is a bit difficult. But the other part of that is it's not kosher. So even if he were sacrificed and barbecued, he's not kosher. So the idea of eating him to get eternal life is a non-starter for them. 53. So Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we have this, I will raise him up on the last day again. Now, it's bad enough to contemplate eating the flesh of a person, but drinking the blood is doubly bad, because even kosher animals, you don't drink the blood. For those of you who were here when we did the wedding at Cana, where he goes in and pours water into the stone jars, and the metaphor I gave you is today, it's as if somebody would go into the toilet, scoop up some water in the toilet, and pour it into the guest's wine glasses. Now, when the toilet is freshly cleaned, that water is in fact perfectly sanitary. But nobody here would contemplate doing that. It just wouldn't be done. Even if the toilet had been freshly scrubbed and you knew that everything was pristine and clean, you just wouldn't do it. So Yeshua is doing the same kind of thing here when he says the only way to get eternal life is to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It is the same kind of a thing as he did at the wedding at Canaan. He just takes everything and just turns it upside down, and he's going to lose a whole bunch of folks at this point. 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Yeshua said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So this is like going into church and saying something really unacceptable. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Put in their parentheses. This is really disgusting. 61. But Yeshua, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. In other words, you are unable to get past the disgusting image and understand what I'm saying. For Yeshua knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In other words, what I have just said, in order for a believing Jew to get past that, is a God thing. Only if God touches you and draws you to me are you going to be able to get past the disgusting image I just laid out in front of you. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Yeshua said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? At this point, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. He had a crowd of disciples with him who were following along, and he's now winnowed it down to twelve. And he now looks at them and says, Okay, you guys in this for the long haul. So Yeshua said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, we know that you are the Son of God, you are the Mashiach, and we are going to be able to get past these disgusting images that you are using and see what's actually going on. Yeshua answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So everybody got what's going on here. We had, first off, the riff on authority. Then he does the feeding the 5,000. Then he walks on water. And feeding the 5,000 is in the context of bread. So he starts off establishing his authority at the end of chapter 5. Then he does the miracle with the bread. That gets us into the subject of bread. Then he walks on water. Then he comes down and he gives us now the long teaching on the bread of life. And, oh, by the way, he does that in the authority that he established back at the end of chapter 5. So the bread of life discussion has been set up by the miracle, and that's been set up by his riff on his authority. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.